0: Welcome to In The Woods, I'm James Woods, aka William Moore, the author of Sparrow's Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tales series, and co-founder of Majavi. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, I want to help you dig through the weeds and get to the roots of what may be holding you back from growing and succeeding in your industry. The mindset when you have to overcome when things don't go your way. So join me, In The Woods. Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, a.k.a. William Moore, the author of The Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Fairytale series and co-founder of Majave. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, join me in the woods. So today I have a very special guest. Uh, I think this is gonna be an episode that's helps a lot of people, especially in a career or they're trying to move somewhere else or just currently where they are. Sam Bridge. Uh, he's been, he currently is a technical recruiter at Amazon, uh, AWS services. And I work with him personally at a company I'm at now. And I've, during my years, I've worked with many, many, many different recruiters. And Sam and I have, I've probably worked on, done what, maybe 100, 200 interviews with you. Like literally, it was a ton over a couple years. And yeah. you were one of the recruiters. I felt you truly cared about what you're doing. You made that extra effort to learn more, not just about getting someone a position, but also about the developers themselves, rather be the developers you're interviewing and also the developers who are doing interviews are working with you. You work very closely with them to make the whole process go very smoothly. If it was getting me the interviews, I mean, getting me the resumes or getting me the documentation so I could write, do a write-up on whoever... You, to kind of funnel them through the process. So you you made it very smooth transition on both ends. And even outside of that, I've learned, you know, we've had a lot of different conversations and I've learned quite a bit about you. You had a couple of children's books that you were working on. That was what you were going to school for with illustrations. And you you've just been a very well-rounded individual. I know you went to school in London. Yeah. If I'm correct. So yeah, you you went to school in London. I just found out today you were a chef. That that kind of blew my mind. I would have definitely never seen that side of you, but you know, you always surprise me every time we kind of have these conversations. So you're in the technical realm now. How did you first get into that career? Because you went from chef, you did books, and you've been in technical recruiting for what fourteen, fifteen, decade and a half now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. First of all, thanks ever so much for that introduction. That's really sweet. That is the nicest collection of things people have said about me. <laughs> yeah, I think you called it well-rounded, but it was really scattergun. So yeah, you're right. I did a fine art degree and I was always really interested in anything creative. And so yeah, I did a bit of chefing, uh, wrote some children's books. I always thought I was going to be some sort of illustrator. I don't think it matters too much. You know, people think about like musician, like visual artist, graphic designer. All of these jobs has been they're the creative professions. Everything else is you know boring desk job. But you can bring that sort of creativity to every single thing you do, like whether it be software engineering or or anything really. Because I mean, we were talking a bit before this. I think any job can be a bit of a slog, a bit of a trudge, a bit boring if you're just doing the same thing day in day out. Anything can be like that. Being an artist can be like that. Being a chef can definitely be like that as well. So it's just about sort of adding a bit of creativity to to anything I'm doing. And I think starting off, you think those specific jobs or those professions are the ones that that, I'm now a creative. I'm sacred. I'm important. But, you know, recruitment, you you can be as creative as as you want to be, as you allow yourself to be. So, yeah, I, I got into it. I think I was a chef, I think I was earning earning something like five fifty six pounds an hour back in London and my brother had been doing recruitment. He's over in Singapore, he's a recruitment director at a company and I saw his I saw his paycheck and I was like wow I'm in I'm in the wrong place where this is <laughs> this is not paying the bills at all It was fun and everything like if you've ever read something like Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain like that and gets across really well the sort of camaraderie I felt like a pirate on a ship when I was cooking um but yeah I saw that and I was like wow I've I've really got to do something about this because there's one thing that fine art doesn't set you up for and that's nice things and it's it's all about that tortured starving artist and that's not really what I wanted to do so I was doing sales I was doing energy brokering which is just selling you know energy solutions and market advice to people which was which was all right it was my first sort of sales job and it was a great place to sort of cut my teeth and learn all about sort of sales. And I was genuinely really interested in it because I always thought I've got these preconceptions about salespeople being like, uh, slick back hair and sell their mother down the river just for a deal. But I was fortunate enough that the people I was, and don't get me wrong, there was some of those people around. Uh, but the people I was working with were really, really good and some awesome people that were able to ignite a passion in you. It's, it's one thing sort of teaching people something and another thing sort of just igniting that passion so they teach themselves. So I, I knew a lot about, I didn't know a lot, I thought I knew a lot about sales and salesmanship and uh, and it was just something that was really interesting to me and recruitment was sort of that two-way sales. It wasn't like, sell me this pen, I'll oh, hear all the benefits of this pen. It was like, Sell this pen to someone, then sell someone to this pen. It was like this two-way thing, which, again, had a lot of creativity. And it was like the Wild West. There, there weren't as many rules. Um, it, there was a lot, a lot you could do with it, really. And, yeah, as long as you can be interested, exactly like you said, interested in what you're doing, and you can be just completely transparent and honest with people well I work with agencies first I moved from an energy brokerage to a recruitment agency there's some absolute dodgy dealings going on there's a lot of you know questionable motives and morals and practices but I learned really quickly like half of my brother and half of sort of what I'd learned previously at this energy company, that as long as you can be honest and upfront and people are going to trust you, and that's so important in recruitment, both on sort of candidate and client side, if you ever sort of stray outside those boundaries, then no one's going to trust you again. And I knew what it said. I was trying to build a career, so it's something I wanted to be in for a long time. So I'm making a fast buck, you know. That's that's not going to set you up for success, really. But, yeah, that's that's how I got into it.
0: You have a very interesting personality. Like I said, I've worked with many different recruiters, different from Robert Half to tons of them, where I've been on both sides, where I was going through them to get a job and I've worked with them to recruit people into the company I was working with it. And there's many different personalities, like you were saying, there was some that had kind of shady dealings. They, it, it was almost, they were just trying to fill the role and not so much care too much about who was coming in. I didn't get that from you. And one thing we had a conversation before, when it comes to sales, I find there's, if you can get someone to trust you, get someone to like you, and you give them something of value, or rather be monetary, career relationship, whatever it may be, then it becomes a lot easier for them to sell, free, for you to sell them whatever the product or the service is that you're giving to them, because they they feel good about their decision. And how did you become that person was it something in your life was it through your career was it mentors how did you kind of mold into that personality that almost feels like you were tailor-made for recruiting
1: yeah no great question thanks again I mean I'll, you don't necessarily have to be interesting although like I'm fascinated with software engineers and what they do I think it's modern day magic I really do like it's Incredible, what can be done, and it's like we're right on the precipice where all these different things are, are are coming out. Every new technology, and like so, the people, the actual engineers that that work with this, I, I think it's amazing. um I, I've done little bits and pieces of coding, but I'm useless, like compared to the people I'm recruiting. But I'm interested, and that's what the thing is. And you know, I think that was the first thing that Dale Carnegie said in that "How to Win Friends and Influence People." It's like you can sort of Keep up that pretense, but it's so much effort and hard work trying to pretend to be interested in something or someone. But if you are genuinely interested in it, no matter what it is, like if you're interested in pens, then yeah, wicked, go and sell pens. But if you're interested in engineers, then it's a joy a lot of the time. You know, it's hard work and everything, but still being able to hear what people are up to, understand what people are up to as well, and see them then put it into practice oh, it's absolutely great. I'm, I'm not saying it's like always rosy and feel like I never work a day in my life. That's not the case, but, you know, it certainly makes it a lot more palatable being able to like, be genuinely enthusiastic about it. I, I think that massively helps.
0: Is Now, you switch careers. You say you went from the chef, your, your brother was in the recruiting and you kind of went into that. What advice would you give someone to get into recruiting? I've I've had many many jobs and recruitment was never even on my radar. I I don't even know how you would even get into that field to begin with.
1: Yeah, so I think you want to recruitment's such a wide profession, especially now on with Amazon. I was thinking, okay, so it's mainly software engineers. It's not like we is fashion design is that any job that you can imagine we recruit for in some capacity so anyone getting into it i'll try and identify what your niche is going to be because no one's just you know a recruiter everyone specializes in something and it could be tiny little micro processes it could be software engineers and architects it could be anything at all uh, i'm just saying things that are in that sort of technical sphere because that's what i work in but it could be you know ballet dancers or shoesmiths or something like Whatever you're interested in, I'll try and make that your niche. And it just makes it a lot easier to become interested and enthusiastic about the people that you're finding. And, yeah, I mean, it does take a lot of resilience. You know, you're going to get ghosted. There's a big conception Especially from agency side, I think you alluded to it that we're all out to make a fast buck, and there are all these like weird dealings and black arts that go on. Yeah, just just try and be. It, it, it's going to. It seems like a good idea at the time, and I know recruiters have got an immense like pressure on them in terms of targets and seats to fill, and you know projects that rely on these people being in these seats. So you're sort of like pushed into uh, doing that sometimes. But I'd push back. Not do that. It's it's not worth it in the long term because all you've really got as a recruiter of anything is your reputation. Is that are are people going to come to you? And if word gets out, you know the world's tiny now. All it takes is one glass door review that mentions your company or you by name. And you know if all you've got is your reputation and your name, and that gets sort of dragged through the mud, then you haven't really got anything anymore.
0: Nice. Now. Another thing is, in every field, if you want to be the best, you, you have to improve or upgrade your skills and talents. You alluded to it before where you said you know you did a little bit of code, you consider yourself useless, but the fact that you even know a little bit about it. So when you're having conversations, you have a general idea of what people are speaking about. Another thing that I found very interesting that you actually went ahead and you, you, um, you received your AWS Certification for Cloud Practitioner. That blew me away because most recruiters that I, I've worked with are not going to that detail to gain more knowledge and experience about what they're doing. So what are some of the best resources that you've learned or used along the way that have kind of helped you continuously grow? You've been in the industry for 14 years, so you've gone from a base recruiter to manager to you know senior what what was those things that you've learned, or how did what were those resources?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, any sort of certification, like you know, that's relevant to your field, I think, is really important to to pursue and go for. And especially if you are learning about this off your own back, it's a good way to sort of say, yeah, I learned about this. You know, LinkedIn Learning's been Really good. I didn't have a great deal of sort of management experience, and but you know, as as long as you're passionate about it, you will uncover things that that are great. I I mean, the the things that have been the most useful for me are books. There was there's a ton of awesome literature out there on sales and like sales ethos as well. And there's a great one that's just. Simon Sinek, who's really mission driven and he's got a book called Start With Why and it's so good in sort of boiling down exactly sort of why you're doing something because people do you know jobs, especially recruitment for, for money, for financial gain for loads of reasons. But if, if you've got a mission statement that that you know yourself, even if you don't audibly communicate it to people on every call or, or any call at all. I think that's uh, really important because that's what's going to get you up uh, every morning. So, yeah, I I think those sort of books, any sort of art of negotiation, I was fascinated by. Um, I I thought they were any book um, on negotiation I will read, no matter what the reviews are. I I just think that's fascinating. I so rarely have to use it as well because a lot of it's just sort of sourcing and then it's only a tiny bit of the recruitment process but yeah i used to absolutely love that
0: and in regards to now you have those resources the, the certain books that do the art of negotiation these books that you were reading anything in regards to sales negotiation were there people in your life mentors or someone that kind of helps you along the way usually when you go on up uh, especially if you're looking to move up in your career there's usually mm. going to be someone who's a little bit more skilled than you are, that you can kind of get these tidbits, these gems that help you move along a little faster than you would have without it. Do you have those people or how do they assist you?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's been some angels out there that have really helped me out throughout my life. I remember when I was working at this energy company, there was a guy called Andy Blake, and I was hired basically straight out of university. So, And I'd done a fine art degree, so I was really good at quietly working away painting and drawing and everything like that but it didn't really set me up for sales and he really took me under his wing and yeah just sort of taught me I think the first thing he told me is just speak louder it's such a tiny bit of throwaway information and he'd sit with me and he's like no speak louder speak louder and I was like quite a meek mousy guy straight out of a fine art degree and just that tiny little thing makes you come across with a little more authority especially if you're talking about financial energy markets you don't know what you're talking about at all immediately that gives you a bit more gravitas and people are oh hang on this guy sounds like he knows what he's on about and then so so much good information came out of Andy Blake he's such an awesome guy and you know he taught me that an expert was knowing one percent more than the other person and that really ignited that sort of fire to learn and Understand it's true as well. If you know that bit more than someone else, then you're the expert in that situation. That's all an expert means. Um, but there's been loads of people. I've been really fortunate to work with some great recruitment uh, people. Henry Yansen brought me on to In Rhythm when I worked there. He's uh, he's an awesome guy. He's another big, loud guy. Had a bone-crushing handshake as well. <laughs> I was in New York, I think I'd been there for about two months, i so I just sort of started looking for a job. And, uh, you know, the officers were on, or really near Wall Street. And he had braces, he had like a pinstripe shirt on, His crunching handshake. I feel like I broke every bone in my hand. I was like, wow, this is proper, like, New York sales guy. He, uh, he, was, he was a really good guy. He used to come in at something crazy, like 5.30 in the morning, and be the last one to leave. And he had some sage advice always. He was he was
0: great. Now you've been in recruiting for a while, and I know you've probably heard things that people believe are the truth, but from your experience you've found that they were myths. Are there any myths about recruitment or your industry that you would like to debunk or just kind of share with the world? Be like, guys, please stop saying that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it a bit earlier. I think people who think that all recruiters are just out to make a quick buck and, you know, we just annoy people, blast out a load of messages on LinkedIn and then, like, ghost you. Uh, Don't get me wrong, people like that do exist, but I guess you've got to find the right person to work with, but we're not all like that. And I know a lot of people, when I reach out, who I can almost hear, even through a LinkedIn message, and eye roll and i like, like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. another recruiter reaching out. And it's hard, it is hard to see the wood from the trees, really, when you've been burnt so many times in the past. But that is that is a stereotype that we've got to get over, I think, as an industry. It's, it's not on other people to just give up that sort of mindset. It's up to recruiters, really, to change that themselves. Because the... That mindset or that theory about recruiters doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from people being burnt. And there are a lot of, you know, I think I heard somewhere, I can't verify this with facts, but I think as a recruiter, the average sort of time people are recruiters for is six months. So people get into it, realise what it's about, realise how much reaching out is involved, how much tenacity you need, and then just think, wow, no, this isn't for me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's a tough old job. Like, and you've got high targets and everything like that, and you are often sort of pushed into sort of reaching up a lot of times. A lot of people can be a bit slapdash about it, but if you find that happening to you, I think you might be in the wrong sort of profession um, or the wrong job. You know, if if you're getting crazy targets to the point where you're being pushed into doing these dark dealings, then. You know, that's that's not a wholly savory atmosphere. Um, but yeah, that, that is one myth that I'd like to dispel. Oh, you know, I wouldn't sell anyone down the river. And I know a lot of people that I work with uh, that feel the same same way.
0: And one of the things I, I from your experience and expertise that I definitely wanted to get your perspective on, this is kind of to help recruiters and also people who are looking to get jobs. What are some of the things? If I'm looking to get a job, rather be at any of your companies, Amazon, AWS, whatever, that a recruiter is looking for, something that can help them in that process to help you and for you to help them. Rather be the format of the resume, rather be how they're speaking to you, what skills do they need. like what, what, is, what would be something that you could help our listeners in regards to helping them get a position or working with the recruiter to help them?
1: Yeah, I love it. That's a great question. I mean, I've researched the company. First of all, it starts with finding out why you want to work for a certain company. I've seen people blast out a load of resumes to all and sundry, like so many different companies. And then, you know, when they get back in touch, you know, then they figure out, "Mm, do I want to work with this company? I think it can work, that sort of scattergun, casting a wide net. But I love people who know why they want to work for certain companies, and even if they break it down to, you know, I'm initially going to apply to 10 of my top tier companies, wait a fortnight, wait like a month or something, and then apply to my second tier and the third tier. Uh, I think that's really important, doing your own due diligence, finding out why you want to work for companies, which companies you want to work for, and then making targeted select applications to those organisations. i I'd also, in terms of format, say, create a one... Page resume. I don't care right how long your career is. You know, just just for me, this is a really selfish thing to say, but recruiters they sometimes have to look through over a thousand resumes per day, and so you don't want to be scanning if it's not immediately apparent what you are, what your last position is sort of education and everything like that. If it's not immediately visible within the first three seconds, then you need to redo your resume. Uh, I was told that. I had a three-page resume when I'd had one job, which was ridiculous. <laughs> and done one thing. There's no need for three-page resumes. And, yeah, you can send it to friends and family or even better, sort of people who don't really know what you do and say. Right, tell me within three seconds. What do I do? What's my uh, career history? And what am I looking to do next? And what sort of jobs are going to suit me? Because that's normally what you get. If, if, if there's only a certain amount of time in a day, and so if you have to look through sort of a thousand resumes, then that's all you're getting. Or you're scrolling through LinkedIn. You know, make sure all the dates line up with LinkedIn and your resume. Because more often than not, people are going to Reference that, and if there's any sort of discrepancy, it doesn't look super professional. Obviously, my spell check everything, but yeah, one page resume is the big, big thing there. I used to run these workshops for um, sort of sorting people's resumes out, and that was the biggest thing.
0: That's very interesting yeah. you were saying that because I remember you and me actually had this conversation, and you would send me the resume, and I literally—I don't know if you remember—I used to always tell you this, dude. I don't really care about the resume. I say, you give me the resume. The only thing as the interviewer that I look at the resume is I scan through it and I said, okay, according to this resume, this guy says he's a senior dev. So when mm. I get into the interview, I'm interviewing him as a senior dev. I don't care what his resume says because the, the reason I say that is I used to be a writing consultant and I used to do professional resumes and bios. I can make anybody sound incredible so you i can't really
1: say it again about you said me something once it sticks in my memory i think about it at least once a week when i'm reading through these resumes it was like about someone removing a light bulb and it was said in such a poetic way that it was like it made it sound like he was this logistic um, like magician but really he's just taking a light bulb out
0: Right. Exactly. And and that's one of the main things I try to say is you can't really go by the resume. For instance, if I work at one company for eight, nine, 10 years and that's all I know, I only know their system. So it's not that I have 10 years experience. I have one year experience 10 times because if I go somewhere else, my experience at this company may not transition when I go to that other place. So that's one of the things I kind of have to funnel out from an interviewer's perspective and say, okay, I've looked at this resume. Okay, according to this guy, he should be a senior developer. So I'm going to ask him a few basic questions. If he can't answer these, then I know his the rest of his resume is probably complete crap anyway. So that's why I say I don't focus too much. The resume opens the door and it gets your foot in the door. After that point, there's nothing I can do. It's 100% on you to prove to the recruiter or to the interviewer that I'm the person that you need for this position?
1: Uh, I think that's really well said. It is a foot in the door. It's like someone making an initial pitch. And, you know, you don't want to be too lengthy and go on for pages and pages like in an initial pitch. If it gets to the next stage, then, yeah, you can be a bit more in-depth and lengthy right. with your answers. But this, you nailed it, I think. It's just a foot in the door. So yeah, one hope you'll get your foot in the door.
0: I think there was one time, I don't know if you sent it to me or there was someone else there that sent me, it was like an eight or nine page resume. It was literally so long, I didn't even look at it. I'm just mm-hmm. being honest, I don't, I don't know the person's name. I'm sorry if you were that guy. It was a nine page resume, I looked at it. I said, if he cannot, if he has no respect for my time, that he wrote a nine-page resume. I literally just tossed it to the side, and whoever the recruiter was, I said, "I'm, I'm not looking at this." I said, "I'll interview them," but I said, "This resume, he—it's a paperweight. I'm a paper. I'm not looking at it." So yeah. I highly recommend. I know in a technical field, sometimes it's a little harder to squeeze it into one page, but from the interviewer side. We're not looking at it that closely. So if it's the last one or two jobs that you had or all the details, the technology, if you need all the technologies, I know node, I know job, I know Objective-C, put it at the bottom in a list of all the different skills that you have. Yeah. But if it's the same thing, I do iOS and you put iOS in every job, I guarantee you, no one has read every single line of your resume. We're just not doing it. We look at your title, the company, we ha- we look a little bit at the first couple, we're not going to the third page. I'm not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know that on these job boards the more you have certain keywords, the higher up you'll be on the ranking, but yeah, when it actually, so that could get you a foot in the door, but when it actually comes to people reading it, like, yeah, that's, that's not a great look. Uh, but nine pages is nothing. I've seen 40-page resumes before. 40? Very, oh, four zero. yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, bearing in mind this person had a 30-year career, but it's like, you know, 29 years ago, your cells totally change every seven years, right? It's like just you're a completely different person multiple times over. Just put the last seven years in there, all right? It's stuff you did like 20, 25, 30 years ago, they're not going to be tremendously relevant.
0: Now, when you're looking, say you look through LinkedIn and you look through all these resumes, what are some of the key points that you look for when you're looking for, okay, this is the guy that I want to put through my funnel?
1: Yeah, Something that I always look for is what they did personally. I look for a load of sexy technologies as well. If they've had any experience or certifications with like AWS or Azure, any sort of cloud provider, I love that. You know, if if they've worked with like Kubernetes and Docker, and um, that's great to see. Um, But also what they've done themselves. It's very easy to say, "Oh, this is what we did. This is what the team did, or the company achieved." That, and that's great, don't get me wrong, but it's like, what was your specific involvement with that? I mean, that's why I talk to people um, a lot. And that, and that sort of initial qualifying call is going to be the most important call you'll have uh, to find out exactly what their involvement was in it. Because you can work for some of the biggest companies in the world and just be a little wallflower and maybe you've done some support or some bug fixing, but you never really got into the architecture or the, like, really meaty development bit. So, and it, and again, like we said, the resume can make you look like an absolute superstar. So I think, you're yeah, really trying to dig down into what they've been doing. And if it's on the resume, this is what I did. And, like, back it up with some quantifiable data as well, like reducing, like, latency or... Whatever it is, just being able to say, this is something that, like, concrete, data-driven that I've achieved, it's like, oh, that's great. And obviously, you know, you pick into that, you dig in, find out exactly, again, what their involvement was, was a team that did that. But I think that's the most important thing that I look for.
0: One thing that I've learned, especially as a, as a lead in several different positions, is a skill that I think every developer needs to have, because if you want to go beyond just being a body in a seat, there's going to be a point where you have to start working with the technical leads. If you're not a technical lead, you need to speak to business. You need to speak to other decision makers on whatever the project you have. You have to get to a point kind of what you were saying is make it sound pretty, but at the same time, if you can get to the point where you can make the complicated and break it down to layman's terms so that a recruiter, anyone else can understand what you're saying, Yes, I know you wanna use the, the latest jargon and make you sound, yourself sound super smart, mm-hmm. don't. Because some of the decision makers outside of technical people, don't know what you're speaking about. And even if I am a technical person, if I'm an old school guy, I may not know the new school jargon or vice right. versa. I may be the new, it's, you just have to be careful in regards to the, the wording. And even just from your verbal skills, when you're having a conversation with people, Try to break things down where you're not trying to sound smart. You're trying to break it down as if I was trying to teach, for instance, if you do a coding challenge and I ask people to explain what you're doing, because sometimes I've hired people that didn't finish the test completely and I've not hired people who aced it in a heartbeat, because the people who it in a heartbeat probably have done the test a million times through different coding websites, but they can't explain you know, the big O or why they use this loop or or the name or the structure. They can't explain anything. They just know how to solve it. And then you may have another guy that may have been a little bit nervous, but as he's explaining those steps, he's breaking it down line by line. Before he even started coding, he may actually break down, okay, I'm going to do step one, two, three, four, and five. And then he'll actually start coding where he's looking for a solution to the problem you're giving him before he even starts to work. So now once he starts doing the work and he starts coding, me as a technical lead, I can pinpoint, and I've done that sometimes where I'll give people a hint. He's like, oh, well, what's this value? And it was like, huh? I said, just do a console log, what's that value? And they'll go and they'll see what the value is and it's not what they are expecting. Like, ah, and they'll go back to step two when they want three and they'll fix whatever the bug was because they had an architecture that they broke down as they were going through it. So this is just me adding my two cents from the, the technical recruiting side after they get through you and come to the recruiting side is be able to explain what you're doing. Don't just do it. Because most companies are not looking just for bodies of seeds or people that have gone through the crack in the code book. We're looking for people yeah. that if I give them a problem that they've never seen before, they can take all that combined knowledge and experience from all their different jobs and they can come up to a very high quality solution those are the people that we're looking for that after you get in the door will slam the door behind you be like you're the guy yeah
1: i totally agree i, th- I think that's the most important bit of any coding challenge I and mean, when i'm sort of like prepping people for an interview it's, it's all about making sure that whatever question you're asked you know you always want to stop because any interview, not, like, if you want the job, is going to be quite a nerve-wracking experience. And especially for coding interviews, people are just like, they're given a problem, want to go away, code it out, and just almost get it over with. But I think those people, and I think you're talking about problem solvers, like really high-level problem solvers are going to stop, like think about it, break it down into its logical components. Then the next stage is being able to articulate how they're gonna progress with it and then action that action in that is like the last little bit. It's all about sort of clarifying, asking questions, like defining the parameters. It's so that sort of like measure twice, cut once, rather than just trying to hack out a solution and almost that you know, you can accidentally get the right answer, but it's like,
0: Exactly. Cool. Yeah. So this is where I kinda of like to switch things up a little bit. If you were the interviewer and I was the interviewee, is there a question that you would have liked to answer that I didn't ask? Or is there a question that you would have liked to ask me? Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you asked some really good questions there, mate, I genuinely do. If there are any questions that, no. I mean, I'm interested to ask you questions. We, No, that's what I
0: mean. Is there something you would have liked to ask me? Yeah, how the book's going? My book? Oh, wow, that was uh, left field. I'm actually in the process of finishing up the uh, second book of Twisted Fairy Tales now. So uh, I think you, I actually sent you, I actually was on the cover of Mr. Dream's magazine. So that was my first cover. And I, I spoke gotcha. to the company so, so, and they were yeah. saying I'm actually the first author on the cover. So it's usually right. entrepreneur, artists, music artists, producers, actors that are on the cover. Iggy he has been on a cover, a bunch of people. So that meant a lot for me because it's my first magazine cover to help me promote the book in process. But my goal for the future is I just started a a corp, uh, writer's journey. It's kind of going to hold all of my philanthropic and, uh, literary work. So I have the podcast. I'm also creating a YouTube channel called the art of wordcraft, where I'm going to be going through the entire writing process from the creative phase, the writing phase, the editing phase, the publishing phase, the licensing phase, the media phase, the marketing, social media phase, and also just how to become more uh, a better technical writer and a more creative writer. So that was one of my ways, I, I was having this conversation with a friend recently where I'm looking at a lot of movies and I'm reading a lot of books and a lot of mangas and animes, and a lot of the ideas that seem to be getting regurgitated over and over and over again, and I see mm. the the creativity in the world is becoming laxed. Had a conversation with my mom and mom said she's watching shows. And it's like, wow, like I even know what's going to happen before it happens. So it's and, you know, there, there's a lot of movies. I'm not going to put anything names out there, but there's all these reboots. It's like or there's movies that are going on way too long. And a lot of people aren't being as creative before. I mean, I know there's, they say there's no such thing as a. Original idea, but I mean, you have to have some type of creativity, get people's interest if you want people to, you know, watch more movies or watch more Netflix or whatever it may be. So oh, definitely, that- it
1: seems we're in some sort of renaissance period, but from like the eighties or nineties, it's like, there's so many things that are just like getting redone. And it's like, you came out about 10 years ago. I would understand if it was like an ancient thing that you are sort of reviving, but this is, this is stuff from like five, 10 years ago.
0: Exactly. So that's the next thing I'm doing is I'll be releasing those. I have, I've written about 50 ideas. Of different topics that I'm gonna be doing 10 minute segments, like three days a week. And then I'll leave a section where if people have a question, I can answer it. If I don't personally know it, I know a lot of people in the industry that can help me to get the information so I can answer those questions. Um, so I'm gonna be finishing up my second part of Twisted Fairy Tales, which is taking a little longer than I had wanted it to because I've done so much research on this book uh, with Greek mythology and uh, American world history and how some of these stories, what they were based on and putting this entire world together, where I'm linking the fairy tales to real world history and Greek mythology. So it's, it's fun, but it's just a lot more work than I thought. And then I have to go through the the month or so of editing. Then my goal is for 2022, I have three books I'm going to write publish next year. The second book of the Sparrows Valley's, series called scriptures of a madman and then the final book of twisted fairy tales, uh, which would be the guardian. That would be the third and final book of this series. And then I'm going to start on the third book of the Sparrow of that twisted, the Sparrow's Valley story. So it's two series I'm working on directly. The Sparrow's Valley. The Sparrow's Valley is actually was planned to be seven books, but they're in parallel. So you can read them in any order because all seven stories happen at the same time, but there's characters and events that explain stuff from other books. So you'd have to read all seven for the whole story to come together. So that's going to be really fun for me. Spirals, uh Twisted Fairy Tales is a trilogy, which is in order. So you have to read the first, second, third, fourth, all makes sense. Mm-hmm. And my goal is to do, I did two books this year. It'll be three next year and it'll be four in 2023 because by that time, I'll be 100% full-time, so I'll have the extra time to write that extra book. It takes me about two, three months. So my goal is I'll be able to finish those 10 books within the next three years. Oh, man.
1: Wow. You're the busiest person in America, it seems like. That is, no, I just uh... love writing.
0: I mean, I have the tech company. You know about Majavi. So that's been going really, really well. We just came back from an event in Florida with a, like 14 very large companies that were working... To solidify some contracts for the summer, which is a big marketing time for them. So Majavi is doing very, very well. Um, you know, I'm still at the same company, but my my main priority and goal right now is Majavi, and mm. my literary kind of giving back, uh, explaining through all my experiences and knowledge on how to become a, a better writer in general, and just how I've done a lot of things that I've done. And as so as I grow, then I want the people that are listening to me to learn something so they can kind of learn from my mistakes so they don't have to keep repeating, because trust me, I made a lot of them. But I've also yeah. learned, you know you know the process, you do a lot more of what works and a lot less of what doesn't. So I'd rather people to do a lot less of what doesn't from what hasn't worked right. for me. Yeah, that
1: makes sense. Oh, nice one, man. And so busy. You haven't even mentioned your ornamental check-ins.
0: The what? Your oh.
1: check
0: yeah, the Ornamental Chickens. Yeah, I, I actually let that company go and gave it to the guy. It was a little bit too oh, much.
1: Like one.
0: <laughs> to anyone who's listening, I had a company uh, uh, of uh, Poco. I can't even remember the name of the company. Basically, I was raising Ornamental Chickens and, and Medellin. So we, we had all these different chickens from around the world from japan and we had the brahma which is that huge chicken i sent you the video for that was almost as big as a little girl and people pay big money as i don't want to say pets they're they're more as ornaments for the property It was mostly for the well-to-do so we were making eggs they weren't for we we weren't these weren't chicken eggs to be eaten these were eggs to be hatched and they were all these different exotic chickens and people paid actually really good money for it. Did very well, but I, I was just working on so much stuff that I, I kind of had to let that company go.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: But yeah, that that was definitely a, a, a fun and interesting time.
1: Yeah, man. Every time I used to come into the office, I, I should have really been asking about Mojave or, you know, something tech related, but... <laughs> the ornamental chickens like fascinating i've never heard those two words used in conjunction like ornamental chickens like
0: okay i never even considered it until i went there and uh, an associate of mine in columbia actually had a business and he lost it during his uh the divorce that he was going through so Hmm. he was like dude if you if you can invest in some of the chickens and i can start the business and i rented out this huge farm we had the whole building Built, you remember, I had the whole farm and different yeah. sections for each one of the, and yeah, he literally lived on the property and took care of the chickens. We had the cameras, so all throughout the day, I would look at my chickens running around. It was pretty cool. That's
1: great. That's really cool. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard about it, uh, my wife and I were talking about business ideas. I came back home and said, I've got two words for you, ornamental chickens. <laughs> right. It's a recruitment. Okay.
0: And now I, I have Airbnb, so I, I have one of those. I'm looking to get a few more of those uh, over in Colombia. maybe in America after COVID. But for now, Colombia has been a little bit of a hotspot. So people are still traveling there a lot. So yeah. Airbnb hasn't fallen at all. People still in the Airbnbs quite often there. So that's a, another right. kind of passive income that I, I've been working on. Awesome, mate. So... What I'd like to do now is kind of give your mind the shine. I spoke a lot about myself for our listeners. What would you like them to know about you or how can they connect with you? Rather be for an, uh, recruitment or just any your, your children's books or anything that you're looking to do that you want to pr- promote.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Sam Bridge, I'm working at Amazon. If you're looking for a job in tech, I'm always happy to chat with people. Uh, I'm very sociable, very connecty at work, but in terms of um, but in terms of everything else, it's a little bit underground at the moment. You know, I've got a, a Tumblr for my artwork and everything, um, but yeah, I'm I'm not really ready to like put it all out there until it's like perfectly done. It may never be perfectly done, but yeah, I'm I'm still working on that at the moment. So I can't remember if yeah, it was.
0: I don't know if it was Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos. I think it might have been Steve Jobs where basically he was saying once you get it to like 80% done, you need to release it because it's never going to be 100. And if you wait for it to be 100, you're going to be waiting the next 10, 20 years before you actually release it.
1: Well, this is about like 40% done right now. So when I get near 80%, I'll be promoting that stuff. We'll arrange another one of these. I'll give you URLs and links galore. But yeah, right now it's uh it's it's nowhere near done
0: gotcha gotcha and how can they find you on linkedin do you know the url or you can just search for sandbridge
1: yeah just look for sandbridge um i live in austin texas there can't be that many Sandbridges (laughs) in austin texas um yeah and get in touch again always happy to to
0: chat awesome Now, here is kind of my signature question for in the woods. Hopefully it's not too uncomfortable. Everyone in their career has times where they didn't want to do it anymore or it was just a hard, difficult time in their life that they had to push through, rather be support. And what was that darkest moment in your journey and how did you cope and overcome it? Was it family? Was it resources? Was it a vacation? Like, how did did you get through that moment? Where you started to question your ability or question just what life had for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I came to America about three and a half years ago. And I think it was when I just started with In Rhythm. And I wanted to make a a splash and, you know, do good things. And, you know, I was given a second chance and everything. And I was sort of six months into my career there, and my mum passed away. And it was it was a little bit out of the blue, and so I had to go back home and sort everything out there uh, a couple of times. And I was, you know, I was questioning everything, really, whether or not I was going to come back or anything. And I guess the way I got through it was not really a great deal to do with me. I think everyone was really compassionate and kind, and. It wasn't like, well, you've overdone your PTO, we're going to have to fire you. Like, like, this is big stuff, all right? If if you're just using it to go to Alicante or, like, go on holiday somewhere, that's one thing. But, you know, take all the time you need, like, honestly. So I think that's what really helped me through it, just people treating me with so much compassion and, like, understanding. I think that was amazing, and I'll be forever grateful for that.
0: I think that's a, a big thing. I always say, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, but... Even also, after you become a child, people kind of forget about that when we grow up. And I feel, especially when you get older and you're on your own and you can't really depend on your parents as much, having that support system rather be your coworkers, rather be a job, rather be your significant other, maybe your best friends. I truly feel everyone needs that, that circle because it's just life happens. There's always going to be those times where you need someone to just be there for you because as you, as mankind, we were not meant to be alone. I mean, there's a thing they say, if you leave someone holed up and in a dark place or solitude for a certain amount of time, they start to lose it. That's, mm. that's proof that people are not meant to be alone. And when you're going through certain situations, rather be family or whatever the personal issue is having that support, uh of those people whoever wherever it may come from is definitely a a benefit and definitely helps you get through those
1: yeah 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 i agree and you know i wasn't i was pretty new to america and the job situation and like coming from europe i give you like 30 days off or i give you about four months off if you've got a paper round so like coming here we didn't have like a a great deal of sort of time off to spend or anything so it was really good that people were understanding of that and like yeah you're right your parents have got to show you compassion your friends as well but it's not something that you really expect from a sort of working situation you know that's work it's like you've got your friends you've got your family and then work's like right over the other end of the spectrum and yeah so so that was great
0: yeah, so I'd like to just kind of close out. Thank you, Sam, for coming on the show. Gave a lot of gems about just the recruiting process, about going into the recruiting, the resume, the entire process. This is definitely information I wanted for myself and also for my listeners to hear not from me, but from someone who actually does it.
1: Oh, thanks a lot for having me on, James. I really do appreciate it. Really nice to see you again and chat.
0: Oh, yeah, it's always. So for everyone, thank you for joining me for this episode of In the Woods. Be sure to sign up to our email list at moreinthewoods.com so that you don't miss out on our next episode. And follow me at William Moore, the author on all social media platforms. I'm James Woods. Some people know me as William Moore. Thank you for listening.